Good morning, everyone. It's very good to see you. Amos chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning, page 648 in the church Bibles, page 648 in the church Bibles, if that would be some help to you. We're going to begin reading in verse 6b is where we're going to start and reasons it will become evident as we move along through the text. I do want to welcome everyone here. Uh, if you're new to West Cohasset, there are a few faces. My name is Joe Franzone and I serve here as the pastor. Happy that you're here. If you're wondering why there's so many empty seats like I am, <laughs> let's hear the word of the Lord. Verse 6b, when disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plans to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and to the fortresses of Egypt. Assemble yourself on the mountains of Samaria. See the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who hoard, plunder, and loot in their fortresses. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun the land. He will pull down your strongholds and plunder your fortresses. This is what the Lord says. As a shepherd saves from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites be saved, those who sit in Samaria on the edge of their beds and in Damascus on their couches. Hear this and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord the Lord Almighty, the Lord God Almighty. On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel and the horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's bow together as we seek the help that we need this morning from the God who we have sang to and sang about. Father, your word tells us that those who you esteem are the ones who are humble, contrite in spirit, and tremble at your word. We pray that we would be given that grace this morning to be able to be humble as we approach these texts to be contrite in spirit and tremble at your word. This is not an easy world to live in. These are certainly not easy times to live in. And so we would need help now. I need help now as always, Father, to do your revealed will, the preaching of your mighty word. So we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. So we're going to get right off the, start right off the bat with the first point which would be introduction. And so if you've got a worship folder, you can turn to the back there. And if you like to take notes, there's spaces there provided for you to take those notes. But we want to talk about introduction first. So this past week, as you know, and as was mentioned already, Hurricane Sandy brought destruction, brought property, loss of life and injuries to a great number of cities and to our fellow human beings on our nation's east coast. The superstorm having caused so much de devastation that you heard time and time again the phrase worst we've seen in our lifetime or the worst storm in our city's history. And those terms were repeated again and again by city officials or by those people in the know. 
Some of the pictures that many of you have seen are crushing. Quite frankly, they're difficult to look at. However, my son and I spent just about a month and a half uh, in the relief and recovery effort during Hurricane Katrina. And when that hurricane swept through the Gulf Coast, we quickly learned that pictures tell one story, but be on the ground and see the devastation is another story altogether. So the recovery on the East Coast and other places begins. It will be a lengthy process. Our fellow citizens, our fellow American citizens are attempting to some degree to return their lives to normal and maybe better still a normal, a new normal perhaps to some. But wherever the storm went through, once again we are reminded of this, of life's frailty, of no matter what kind of structure, a structural vulnerability. We are reminded of death's certainty, no matter how death may come. We are reminded that natural forces are overwhelming, so that nothing on this earth is forever, that there will be a last time for everything, that there is no real safe place that we may go to to hide away from the destructive nature of life on a fallen planet with fallen people and a fallen world system. So in light of verse 6b, which we read of Amos chapter 3, when disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? We must begin there. I mean, last Sunday, October 28th, we read from that text. Then October 29th, disaster came to cities and towns on the East Coast and other places. So when disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Well, we have to give ourselves to try to answer this question, which will serve this morning as our introduction. Was God the cause behind the hurricane? When disaster comes to a city, is it what the Bible says? That's not the Lord caused it. What, what is the doctrine of providence to say here? What is the doctrine of creation to say here? What can we know here? Because, because we have to respond. In fact, we have to some degree already responded, even if our response was simply recognizing the devastation and then going on with our lives. However, if you have been with us week by week in our study of Amos, what has Amos taught us about God and what he would require of us here? Well, we should understand that those affected by this superstorm, no matter where it was, was our fellow citizens, our fellow human beings made in God's image who have and are suffering. How we treat them right now, in some measure, will show us how we will treat our God and our Savior. How we treat them in some measure, how we treat them as Jesus taught us in the parable of the sheep and the goats, will tell a little story about us. Consequently, we ought to have responded compassionately. Maybe some of you have determined to go. You have a lot of time on your hands, so you can go and help. You can volunteer your time and your skill. Believe me, I'm sure they could use it. Um, I'm sure that many of you responded prayerfully and your compassion towards them, asking God daily to have mercy on them and to help them. Perhaps some of you have responded financially, having thought rightly that the extra resources that are needed in times like this can be remarkably helpful and remind one another of our solidarity with our fellow women and our fellow men no matter what coast they are from. Because giving has always been an expression of the love that is called for for those of us who say we know Christ. So hopefully in some degree we've responded compassionately, prayerfully, financially. But how do we respond theologically? How can we turn to our Bibles and seek 
answers here in a sensible way so that we can be sensible because one of the ways the outside world becomes aware of our devotion to Christ is how we respond in word and deed towards the events of life that have happened this past week. This is how, if you would, this is how the Christian sticks out in times like these. And so how can we answer the question that many have, that we might have, sensibly? How can we answer it theologically and not be foolish and say stupid things like the East Coast had it coming to them? Because you would want to ask, how would a mere man or a mere woman know that the East Coast had it coming to them in our day? Unless they are prepared to say that they were receiving direct revelation from God like Amos. And some of us need to come and settle ourselves on where we think down this line. So as to say that God was still speaking, God's still giving new theology, and that he hadn't said everything that he needed to say in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who said in Luke 13, explaining the line of thinking that we should put ourselves in when disaster and natural disaster strikes, Jesus says, verse 2, now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all those other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Are those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now, loved ones, that is redemptive history. This is the unfolding of divine truth. The final words we can now say on natural disaster per Jesus is that all are sinners. So Jesus calls all his hearers to repent. Otherwise, they will perish. These powerful storms are the theater of God. Hey, everyone, look. Those in Siloam had no time to repent. Disaster came, and so death came, and so Jesus speaks to his unrepentant hearers, and he says, you might also face death that will give you no time to prepare to be ready. You, sir, you, ma'am, safe for now in your homes, watching all this unfold, you need to repent. Because the question we should ask is, how would one know that they had it coming to them and the theater of natural disaster? How would one know that they are specifically had it coming to them? Dear ones, listen. This is for God to decide. There's only one judge and he's not telling that way anymore. Jesus' final words on the matter is everyone repent or you will perish because the time is coming when it will be too late and you and I don't know when that is. However, to deny God was not the cause behind this hurricane would be against what the scriptures teach. To say that God did not cause the calamity but he can use it for good is a half truth which therefore really is no truth at all. God is, of course, not a sinner. And God doesn't remove human accountability in these disasters. And God is powerfully compassionate in his very essence. All these things we are to affirm about God and regard them as true. And we may be thankful for these attributes as God extends his mercy to us every day. Because if we really thought about what we deserve, we don't deserve what we get, but we thank God for his mercy. But to say God, by his very nature, would not act to bring about this disaster would actually undercut the biblical view of God and so contradict the Holy Scriptures inspired by our triune God himself. How God controls and rules all events in the universe without sinning and without 
eliminating the responsibility of humankind is a great mystery. But this is a mystery that the Bible teaches. God works all things after the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1.11. Psalm 103.19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. And these all things may simply be like the falling of a sparrow. Matthew 10.29. The rolling of dice. Proverbs 16.33. Or the loss and gain of money. 1 Samuel 2.7. Or God's ruling all, all things might can be mean, mean over far greater things. The decisions of kings. Proverbs 21.1. The sufferings of saints. 1 Peter 4.19. The persecution of Christians. Hebrews 12.4.7. The repentance of souls. 2 Timothy 2.25. The gift of faith. Philippians 1.29. The taking of life and the giving of life. 1 Samuel 2.6. And the crucifixion of God's own dear son, Acts 4, 27 and 28. So from the smallest to the greatest, from the good and evil, from the happy and sad, pain and pleasure, believers and unbelievers, God governs them all for his wise and just purposes, to the praise of his glory, so that men might bow down and give God the glory due his name. So when one asks, what about the winds and the rains and the seas and the floods? In other words, what about hurricanes and all their destructive distresses? Does God control these things finally as well? Answer, yes. And here is when God makes his power, his sovereign power, most clear and the most painful of situations. For example, Job responds as he hears the news of his ten children lost as his son's house collapsed by... A mighty wind sweeping through the desert. Job says, Job 121, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Isaiah 45, 5, 6b and 7. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me there is no God. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the seas and that it waves roar, the Lord Almighty is his name. Psalm 104.4 He makes winds his messenger, flames of fire his servants. Job 38.8 Which is probably the most telling. Job says, who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb. When I made the clouds its garments and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and says, set its doors and bars in place. When I said to the sea, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Now that's a big thought. God speaking to the sea and saying, this far you may go and no more. And I'm not sure if anyone here this morning has ever served in our nation's navy. But if you have, you've sung the navy hymn, which affirms in its first verse the biblical truth when it says, Eternal Father, strong to save, whose arm hath bound the restless wave, who midst the mighty ocean deep, its own appointed limits keep. Oh, hear us when we cry to thee for those in peril on the sea. This is the curtailing of the sea by God's power. John Calvin on this says, Whereas we have dry ground to dwell on, 
Let us not think that it happens through any other cause than it is God's will to lodge us there. Now, we have to move on. But we have to recognize that ever since the philosopher Immanuel Kant came onto the contemporary scene, he was the chief driving force in removing the idea of God in Western thought and removing the idea of God in, in the natural phenomenon realm or the realm of natural disaster. Kant came along or Kant came along and he said, let's take God out of the phenomenal and keep him tied to the minimal. You know, let's keep God to the hocus pocus superstition, make our life better, you know, the insignificant parts of the world. So with the advance of modern science, we keep pushing God out of everything and and the areas where God is permitted in modern man and women may increasingly be picked and chosen each according to his own need, each according to what is right in his own eyes. Now that is a far cry from the example that we have in the Bible and the example of Calvin and Augustine who said, and this is very important, they both said this, they said that natural phenomenon are ways which God prevents us from thinking that this world is normal, that this world is right, and that this world will keep turning on. Loved ones, this world is not right. It will not keep turning on. It will come to an end. It will be replaced. And once again, again, because that is so, the need to repent and the need to cause others to repent, even in these good times, is the primary and crucial need of the church, of the Christian, and so God. Question 27. You didn't think we were going to get out of this without quoting from the catechisms, did you? Question 27, Heidelberg Catechism. What does it mean by the providence of God? What does the Bible mean by the providence of God? Answer. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Yes, all things come, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And if that's just too big for you, then we'll bring our minds down to a simple movie like Joe versus the Volcano. You remember the scene? He's in the raft, a raft made out of sound luggage. Death seems imminent. One night, Full moon rises. It's too much for Joe. Guys like Joe are really very emotional people. Then he raises his hands towards heaven. Full moon coming up. And he says something on the order of, Dear God, whose name I do not know. Thank you for my life. I forgot how big, implication, I forgot how big you are. Thank you. For my life. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Answer yes. The reason for men and women everywhere to repent, to worship God, to fall on their knees and give Him the glory due His name, to remind us that this world is not right. It will all come to an end and to accomplish God's purposes, His mysterious purposes, though they may be, even as we should help our fellow man and woman in their hour of need. Now, with the remaining time, which isn't much, we have our second point, the invitation. 
This is, begins in verse 9. So just as the world was able to watch these hurricane events unfold from a computer screen or a television, the same type of thing is happening here. Amos, God's prophet, is told to go preach to Ashdod. Ashdod's a prominent city of the Philistine Empire. Go preach to Egypt. Still at this time a major world power. And you'll notice that God says twice he mentions their fortresses. And if you look at the remaining verses of this chapter, you'll see that there's, there's this preoccupation from God about their strongholds, verse 9, their fortresses, verse 10, their houses and mansions, verse 10, and their summer and winter homes and mansions, verse 15. All the places a person might run to to protect themselves from trouble, verse 11, or to hide themselves from their responsibilities in their pleasure and leisure, verse 15. So Amos issues the invitation to those dominant nations. He says, come to the theater of God. Assemble yourselves. Verse 9b. Assemble yourselves on the mountain of Samaria. And that speaks to the typography of Samaria. Samaria was a city essentially built on a mountain. However, there were surrounding mountains, most of them which looked down on Samaria. It was kind of like a natural IMAX theater. So you could look down and see all that was about to take place. It's almost like God is saying, come godless nations, come you wealthy nations, come you selfish, inhumane people as they were, you who mistreat the desperate poor, who you who, those of you who ignore the desperate poor, those of you who ignore people made in my image with your injustice, with your bias, with your neglect, with your discrimination, come and watch the mighty hand of the one mighty God about to be laid to down on his own people. And I can almost hear Amos say to them, Yes, you have your fortresses that you give that gives you some kind of mythical sense of security. But this is the theater of God. How were these fortresses built? They were built by plunder and loot, through the sweat of injustice, through criminal violence, through economic exploitation, not through honesty, but by the stealing and exor, exor, ex, excuse me, and the, the pinning the needy in a corner. So that they have no choice but to accept either a low wage or no wage. I'm going to take a little liberty here. This should be preached in Texas right now. Low wage or no wage. And in the invitation Amos gives to these pagan nations in the theater of God, these pagan nations will see at least three things. Number one, no one ever gets away with anything. Not even God's own people. Number two, you cannot have economic prosperity with any degree of longevity without a healthy national morality. No economic prosperity with any degree of longevity without a healthy national morality. The laws of supply and demand, of absolute advantage, of market forces, physical bodies, and the such, they have a minor place in the theater of God in regards to wealth. Number three, in the theater of God, the well-being of, being of our fellow man is crucial. So what do we do? Well, we say that we live in an economically savvy age. People know things about economics now that they never would know 20, 30, 40 years ago. And reality is primarily viewed through economics. And in this view, economic activity and the quest for personal wealth becomes the engine of human behavior. And so the marketplace overrides everything and probably helps us sleep better. At night. I mean, I was thinking this early this morning, I was, I was reviewing all this. I was thinking, when we say our goodbyes to our adult kids, I wonder if one of the things that we tell them to do, you know, we know the normal stuff, you know, get a good job, a good lady, a good guy, don't do this, don't do that. But I'm curious, do we ever tell them, 
There are a lot of poor people out there and all over the world. And make it a point. Make it a point that you set aside money regularly for them. I mean, I would be shocked if the majority of people did that anymore. So in the end, we are taught that we're just kind of merely economic beings, the great sumum bonum, the highest good is brought down to personal economics. I mean, we're not going to lie to each other here. Many times, most people measure a person, or we measure a person, or we measure about how good things are possibly for us by our wealth, how big our accounts are. Perhaps some think that they are blessed when accounts are high and not so blessed when they are low. And so, quite frankly, it takes a storm literally or figuratively in the theater of our own lives to make us rethink everything. Why am I really here? Who am I really? What is life given really for? What will happen after I die? Do I really want to live at this bent that I'm living, that I've been on? And in these questions, the great economic machine is silent. It has nothing to say. Money does not make the world go round. Amos tells the pagan nations, come, you're invited to the theater of God. And I want you to see how quickly these fortresses, these houses, these mansions will be dismissed in the theater of God by the word of God at the hand of God because the people of God refuse to obey and bow down to the dictates of God given for his glory and given for the universal good of all humanity. Verse 10, they do not know how to do right. Hoarders, plunders, looters. They stop asking the first question. What is the right thing to do? That's the question we should always ask ourselves in anything. What is the right thing to do? These people stop asking themselves, what is the right thing to do? And they stop doing it for so long that all of a sudden, verse 10 says, they do not know even how to do right anymore. And we will find out in their moment that material prosperity was a great concern. And it was a higher concern than any moral benefit that they would receive from obeying God. That's what happened to the people of Israel at this time. So God was reduced to a God who, whose only concern was to meet their needs. That's all God does. He makes, makes things better and he meets my needs. And they become unable to judge between what is right and wrong, having lived so long down that bent. And loved ones, when we go down that line again and again, when the truth eventually comes it might seem like a lie to us. We will get to the point, as Amos 3.10 says, we do not know how to do right. Young men that are here this morning, young women, older men, older women, all people, the first question that we have to ask ourselves when we wake up on Sunday morning, when we wake up on Monday morning, when we're dressed to the nines on Friday night, what is the right thing to do? When we open up our books, what is the right thing to do? When we open up our lives and think through things, our next five years, our next ten years, what is the right thing to do? For if we neglect to ask ourselves that question at every stage, at every age in our earthly pilgrimage, we will neglect to open the scriptures to receive our directives, and instead we might open up AARP or Living Magazine or whatever. When the time comes for us to make wise choices, there is a strong possibility that we do not know how to do right anymore. Introduction. God rules and is the ultimate cause in all things. Invitation. Verses 9 and 10. See how he rules you nations of the world. When his own people ignore his decrees and word, devastation and punishment will come. Loved ones, 
Most of us have been long, uh, alive long enough to know that sometimes God even humbles the church before the watching world so that in the scorn of the watching world, we are humiliated and lessons are learned in our humiliation. Last word this, this morning then, annihilation. Verses 11 through 15. This is what the sovereign Lord says. You will notice that this is the first time in Amos that the, Amos that the title sovereign is used about God through the mouth of Amos. The King James Version translates sovereign as God. New American Standard, English Standard to that same end to make the point that what is about to be decreed will happen and no one will be able to stop it. The, the annihilation, if you would, begins. So the places they thought safe will be found useless. The Hebrew word for stronghold and fortresses that's repeated here should give us a picture of our mind of a medieval castle. And medieval castles were built to withstand mighty blows from their enemies. And many of them did. They lasted long, long time. But they will find that all these citadels will be insufficient. As though God cannot take away what he's pleased to give, right? They forgot their Bibles. God raises up disaster, natural or mortal. God, as in, as in the case here, gave their enemies power over them. Two years from this letter, an earthquake will come because they no longer listened to God. They no longer loved him and loved his decrees. And the principle here is so very plain. Jesus said it like this. If you love me, you will obey my commands. If you don't love me, you won't. And if you love me and obey my commands, the marks of your life will be plain. You'll bear much fruit, power from on high, an effectiveness in the work of my kingdom. But if you don't love me, these things will not be true. Verse 12, this is what the Lord says. As a shepherd saves from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites be saved. Now you're thinking here, well, they're going to be saved. Well, let me give you the picture that is actually happening here. And this is, this is great irony here. At this time, if a hired shepherd lost a sheep through an attack of a predator such as a lion, which God calls himself here again and again, the shepherd was required by law to bring back a part of the torn carcass of the sheep to give proof positive that the shepherd did not steal the sheep. So that's all that is happening here. Uh, those in verse 12p who live their lives with their slippers on, who live in ease and pleasure and pursue ease and pleasure full tilt, those that are on the edge of the beds on their couches, God's going to come to you as well. There's nowhere to run to. There's nowhere to hide. And this picture here of the shepherd showing the pieces are the pieces of destruction and not pieces of life. So if we ask the question, what is bringing about this annihilation to God's people, we could say, well, their unrighteousness, their pursuit of ease and pleasure, no matter what the cost, their neglect of God, with no compassion or justice to their fellow man, no matter where they are from. Verse 13, their false worship is useless. This is the picture that Amos is giving to, uh, to us. Truth be told, they never should have built the altar, altar in Bethel anyway. First Kings 12. We'll tell you all about it. Jeroboam was trying to win the affection of his people. And so he set up his own little shop. He had a bull, a calf fashioned. And the invisible God apparently has become visible in this calf. And the people came. They flooded there continually in worship. But it was all wrong. This wasn't what God had said to do. God had said, no, don't do this. 
don't make up your own ways and places to worship me. So that's what a, what a contemporary le- lesson. <laughs> but they shook off his, his decrees. Superstition is what Calvin calls this. They wanted God on their own terms. You see, it wasn't that they were n- not religious. They were very religious. They carried on their religious practices, in some cases with fervor. But the caveat here is that they decided, they would decide on who God was and what God wanted and how God should be worshipped. They made up their own little religious test and they always gave themselves high grades at the end. And this happens all the time because the business of religion is big business. But these hypocrites mock God and they confuse the weak and they confuse the foolish. It happened in their day and of course it happens in our day. But in all this, they had no spiritual power. We're going to find out that all their worship meant nothing. There was no evidence that God was active. Shrines were places of asylum. So they could run to the shrine and thought they could be saved. Verse 14, it falls to the ground. Finally, finally, finally. The final place, and I hope you see the digression. So they're going to run to their fortresses from God. They can't run there. God's going to smash them. They're going to run to the religion and the religious fortresses. They can't run there. God's going to smash it. And now they go to home sweet home. And what homes they were. Apparently things were so good that they were unable, they were, they were able, excuse me, they were able to afford a winter home and a summer home. They could afford two homes, verse 15. Can you imagine having enough wealth to have a summer home and a winter home? Surely Amos is speaking to a people whose minds were riddled with thoughts of luxury and indulgence and ease. And verse 15 is their obituary. And when the archaeologists dig up this generation, this generation already, they already have in that generation what they found when they dug up that generation. It was exactly like Amos said. Archaeologists tend to dig in lairs, the 8th 8th century B.C. lair. They had magnificent homes, much larger than all the centuries before and after them. They had magnificent finery in their homes, much more than the centuries before and after them. And one wonders when they dig us up, this generation up. I wonder what they'll find. So it's not my place to make real estate decisions for you. But it is my place to preach the whole counsel of God, including this passage from Amos. So a question that two of my sources had, one being John Piper, is the owning of a winter home and a summer home, the owning of a cabin wrong? You want to know his answer? Maybe, maybe not. But what we're going to have to do is we're going to leave that all spared and Lord willing for next time. We're going to try to address that next time. Can you believe it? I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> now we're about a minute and a half from communion. But let me close with this. Until we get the answer to that, know this, that this world is the theater of God. God makes himself known in creation, in providence, in sending his blessing, and sending his son, and sending his destruction. This God of the scriptures is no regional deity. He is almighty. There's no chance occurrences. There's no irresponsible slip-ups. There's no such thing as luck. Eventually, this world will crumble. 
And whether you have no home, you have one home, two, three, four homes, that won't really matter. For only God's kingdom is forever. Those of us in Christ are in that kingdom. His kingdom will withstand all the shaking and sifting and purifying that temporal things could never do. So if we're unsettled about the future, we can find rest, we can find confidence, we can find eternity, if you would, only in Christ and not in things. Because whatever happens here, our future is safe because Christ is our Savior and He is a solid foundation that can never, ever, ever be destroyed. So my final word to you in this is don't put your confidence and don't put your joys in what is simply passing away. How, how silly. No matter how thankful you are for those things, don't put your confidence in them. Instead, build your life and find your joys on Christ and do your duties in Christ for his kingdom because only his kingdom, only his kingdom will be forever. Now let's bow together and pray, please, if our elders and those who will be assisting them this morning would come forward as we get prepared to take communion. Our Father God, once again, we are confronted by difficult words from Amos, the prophet from Tekoa. Amos was your man, so this is your word. We have tried our best to understand it and explain it in the time that we've been given. We pray for grace now as we prepare to take from your table. As we think about the death of your son, which is part of your divine will, so that men and women might be saved from eternal condemnation. Now, Father, help us to think and prepare our hearts as we receive from your table. For Jesus' sake, amen.